Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. False advertising. Let me talk about false advertising for a minute. How many people hate false advertising? You ever, you ever watched a movie trailer? And you're like, that looks amazing. And then you go and it's terrible. And not only is it terrible, but they've made you go, that looks like a great action flick. And then you go and it's this really terrible romantic drama that you just don't want to be involved in. Like, there's a movie called Deep Impact. Does anybody know what Deep Impact is? It was the movie that they tried to put against Armageddon and Armageddon destroyed it. But because people need two meteor movies at the same time, it's important. Anyway, Deep Impact pretended to be an action movie and it was a sappy romantic movie. Terrible. I'm going to Hobbs and Shaw this week with my wife. Seriously excited, right? I love Academy Award movies and also the Fast and the Furious franchise. Go figure. It's going to be amazing. But if it comes out that this is just a buddy, a buddy comedy and these, I find this beautiful brotherly love, I'm going to be so mad because I want them to punch people. That's why you go to that movie, okay? That's, listen, this is not who I am. This is, just, this is why you go to a Fast and the Furious movie. But let me tell you, the worst false advertising I reckon I've experienced is when I bought what was pitched as an unbreakable phone. This was a Nokia, which was a phone company at one time, and the unbreakable phone was this burnt orange thing that they were pitching at tradies. So naturally, I decided I needed one, being so good with my hands. And so I was like, yeah, I need that. And they're like, listen, you want this phone? You can drop it off a ladder. It's not going to break. Fall in a bucket of cement. You'll be able to pull it out. Text your mate and say, guess what? My phone still, does, still works. It's fine. You know, tradie of tradies. It's tough as anything. I'm like, I need this phone, definitely, for when I'm sitting at my desk job. So I got this phone, bought it, the Nokia number, 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 I don't know what it was. And I went, and a couple of weeks later, I'm like, oh, I'm going to a concert. Sick. Took my phone with me. That's what you do with phones. Literally, this happens. It's in my pocket. It's unbroken. I go in the mosh pit, bounce around a bit, come out, it's broken. Nobody kicks me. Nobody's like punching me in the, in the leg. Like, it's a mosh pit. These things happen. But... We're just jostling around and I come out and the unbreakable phone is broken from just being in a crowd. Like That is the worst kind of false advertising possible. This is not tough. This is not masculine. I just got a broken phone from a concert. For everyone else knows, it's a Taylor Swift concert. It wasn't, but you don't know that. I can't prove it. So this is the problem. False advertising promises one thing, delivers something else. They say you can't judge a book by its cover. Do you know why? Because books lie sometimes. They write on things on the blurb, like this is the greatest novel ever written, and you read it, and you're like, no, it wasn't. It wasn't even close. So this is what false advertising does. It offers us something, and it gives us something else. It overpromises and underdelivers, and we hate that. Like everyone hates false advertising, but I, I feel like we hate it more in Australia, right? Because false advertising, another way of calling it, is hypocrisy, pretending to be something that we're not, and. Everybody hates hypocrites, okay? This is not exclusive to Australians, but I feel like Australians particularly hate hypocrites. There's something, you know, like we hold our politicians to this standard and any time they do anything that's different to what they said, we're like, oh, you can't trust them. Can't trust the police. And like, realistically, they're probably as trustworthy as we are. We get so mad. <laughs> I, went, I went to a power game yesterday. All right, so... Maybe this is on me. I went, I went to a Port, Port Sydney game with a couple of my mates yesterday. One who's a Port fan, one who's a Sydney fan. The Port, Power, Port won. 
<laughs> We're in the Memphis area, and these guys behind us are just losing their minds. Like, it's just hilarious. Like, honestly, Port fans are no worse than any other fan, but the, the guys behind us were just losing their minds. They're just screaming obscenities at the umpires. They're like, this is a travesty! You're corrupt! I'm, I'm not kidding. They screamed this. You're corrupt! You've been bought! Like, what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Do you really think the umpires are that much hypocrites? So I'm like, I've got to check out the free kick count, and Port had triple the free kicks that Sydney did. I'm like, what is going on? But this is how fired up we get at any perceived injustice, at any perceived hypocrisy. We get so wound up in it. And, and you know what? I think we actually have a right to. Because the thing is, if you're here and you're not somebody who has experience with Christianity, and you're fairly new, and you've been on the outside looking in, there's a lot to think of sometimes that maybe Christians are hypocrites. And I hate saying that, but there's a lot we have to answer for. And I think hypocrisy is maybe the worst thing to reflect on Christianity because it holds so much other stuff within it. Church abuse, a form of hypocrisy, right? Sexual harassment, a form of hypocrisy. Financial mismanagement, a form of hypocrisy. Anything you can think of that has to do with the church promising to be one thing and doing another is a form of hypocrisy. And there's a reason that there's a lot of people that look at the church and say they're corrupt, they're broken, they're fake. Who is this Jesus anyway? If this is what their followers look like, I don't want to know this Jesus. We have a lot to answer for, church. Not encounter specifically, you know what I mean? But we, we do as a church. One in five Australians, according to a survey done by McCrindle a couple of years ago, think that Christians are hypocrites. Just broadly. That's quite a lot. That's, you know, five million people think that Christians are hypocrites. You and I are the face of the church. We are the coal face of the church. We are the people that people look at and say, this is what Jesus looks like. So it's up to us to work out how not to be hypocrites. Now, the word hypocrite is an ancient Greek word, and it used to be a word that referred to people who were performers and stage performers. Now, in ancient Greece, you know, you've got this sort of amphitheater going on, and these people who are performing at the front of the amphitheater, and you get a bit of natural sound projection, but of course, you don't have microphones. There's no big screens behind them. You've only got what they can see. So instead of just projecting and just using their face, they used to put wear these masks. You may be familiar with them, the comedy and tragedy masks. Yeah, you've seen them around. Well, these are the masks that people used to wear to show what their emotions were. Look at me. I am happy today. I'm wearing a happy mask. Oh, look at me. I'm feeling sad today. I'm wearing a sad mask. Still something we do today. We just, you know, don't wear the physical mask to do it. And the thing is, this word hypocrite comes from these two words broken down, hupo and krino. And the two words, one means from beneath and the other means judgment. Judgment from beneath. So a hypocrite is literally someone who judges from behind a mask. Isn't that interesting? And that's really what gets people's goats, I think, about faith. And this is what really is at, is at the core of what James wants to talk to us about in James chapter 2. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. So I want to encourage you, jump into James chapter 2 with me tonight. And let's, uh, and let's see what he's got to say. Because this, James chapter 2, is one of the greatest and most controversial passages of Scripture. And I want us to really understand what James has to say. Okay? So, verse 14. Is, that'll pop up in a second. What good is, it, good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Martin Luther, 
People may, be, may or may not be familiar with Martin Luther, but he really started the church you're in right now. He started the Protestant church as a protest movement against the Catholic church because he believed they were corrupt at the time. And he had a point, and the Catholic church reformed itself as well. But Luther, uh, he called the letter to James, a letter from James rather, an epistle of straw. That is a letter that doesn't hold up. He said, this is garbage. And the reason why is exactly this, exactly this verse. What good is it, my sisters and brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Because for those of you who might be new and wondering why this is a problem, let me tell you something. Christianity is not about the good works you do to get in God's favour. It's about what has been done on your behalf by Jesus Christ to get you in God's favour. You don't do it. It's been done. And so we read a verse like this and we say, someone says he has faith but doesn't have works. Can that faith save him? Our answer should be yes, doesn't it? And this is the problem. This is the problem. See, this idea is known as sola fide, by faith alone. By faith alone. And Paul explains it like this. Here's this letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote half the New Testament. He wrote this. Verse 8, chapter 2. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that nobody can boast. See, we receive grace as a free gift from God that we can't take any credit for. And it's, it's that grace that saves us when we trust in faith what Jesus has done. And that leads us to do good works, which means... When we go and we're looking at good works again and we're asking this question, can, the, can this faith save you? Again, reading Paul in Ephesians 2, we're like, well, yes, aren't these working against each other? The passage in James, it messes with our understanding. It seems to say that faith has to have works, has to have actions in order to save us. And just in case we're not sure, James hammers at home in verse 18. He says this, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from my works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He makes it painfully, painfully clear, emphasis on painfully, that he does not believe that faith and works are separate, and he believes that we need works to be saved. Right? Well, not exactly. See, Luther gets furious at James, and he's got a reason to, because Martin Luther was basically persecuted for living this out. He believed in faith alone, that we are only justified before God by what we believe, not by what we do. He was persecuted his entire adult life for this. So he gets to this, and he reads a letter like James Luther, a bit of an angry dude as well. I suppose you can understand that. He gets fired up, and he goes, this is garbage. How can this even be in the Bible? This is weak and flimsy. But the thing is, James is saying actually something a little bit different. And the New Testament theologian Thomas Schneider puts it this way. He says, we are called to read deeply and canonically, which means we are called to read the whole Bible the whole thing. We don't take one verse at a time. If you've ever been in those arguments with people, or if you've ever been that person in the argument, you said, yeah, but this one verse in Leviticus says, like, okay, sure, sure. Let's read all of Leviticus. And they say, well, I don't want to do that. I'm like, no, of course you don't. But you've got to do that in order to put it in context, in order to understand what's being said in the whole book of Leviticus. And they go, okay, fine, I'll do that. And it's like, hang on, you need to read all the law. You need to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Oh, that's a lot. Hang on. Then you need to read the history, the wisdom literature, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the New Testament. You need to put it all together and say, what is the story of God revealed to us from start to finish? That's what we need to do when we read Scripture. This is what we need to understand. So we take a single verse like this, and if we take it out of context, 
We go, well, I have to work harder for God to love me more. But you don't hear that. You don't. How do we know that Paul and James are trying to say the same thing? Because this, this is what R.C. Sproul, great theologian, said. He said, the reformers, the people who reshaped the global church after Martin Luther, taught that justification is by faith alone, but by a faith that doesn't remain alone. Not by a faith that is alone. What Paul defines for us, what James is trying to say, what Luther fought for, and what the early reformers stated was simply this. The Christian faith is a living faith. It is a living faith. It is not a faith that rests. It is not a faith that is dead. It is a faith that is rich and alive. It begins in the mind and the heart and moves inevitably to the body and the soul. How do we know this? Because of verse 19, this strange last verse we read today, which is one of those classic verses that either when you read the Bible, you get stuck on it or you move past it as quickly as possible. But let's spend a moment on it. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Nothing like a good demon reference to get you ready for Monday morning. Am I right? Uh, (laughs) What we're talking about here, what James is referencing is something called the Shema. Everybody say Shema. Shema. The Shema is is this important Jewish prayer that is actually central to who they are. The Shema is included in their morning and evening prayers even today. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the books of the law. Now, why is this important? Because for Israel, they're saying, we believe in one God. We are a monotheistic religion. The cultures around us in ancient Israel were pagan. They believed in tree gods and stone gods and probably lecterns turned the wrong way around gods as well. I don't know. But they, if you're listening to this on the podcast, that would never make sense to you. And I'm sorry. This is why you need to be in church. This, for classic gags like that. There's all these, ga- all these gods that are, are being worshipped in ancient pagan Israel and ancient pagan Philistia. And Israel says, no, we are monotheistic. We believe in one God. But James, who is speaking mostly to Jewish Christians, pushes hard on this. And he's not saying, I disagree. No, he's just saying, and? Like, is that it? Is that the extent of your faith? James is challenging his listeners who are going, hey, God is real. And he's like, yeah, yeah? and? That's it? Like, that's a low bar. James is saying it is such a low bar that demons agree with you. And if you're doing the New Testament Bible reading plan with us, you've just gone through Luke 4. And in Luke 4, Jesus has this encounter with a demon-possessed man. And the demon says, I see you. It's Jesus. And Jesus casts him out. The demons recognize that God exists and God is one. So James is saying, if that's the bar you are setting for how you live out your relationship with God, you need to think bigger. You really do. Is that... Is that what you want to be seen as by your children? No, no. Wait till they're teenagers. No, no. No, James is saying there's more. But the shamer says that too. I need you to hear that. This is what it goes on to continue to say. Verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Well, what did Jesus add to this? Love your neighbor as yourself. See, this is what James is getting excited about. He is getting excited about a fully lived out version of Israel's prayers to say God is one and we worship him and then we live it out by loving our neighbours. That's at the heart of the Christian faith. That's what it means to have a living faith. See, Luther was wrong. James isn't flimsy on faith. He's not, and despite Jesus being his brother, 
He's fully in tune with Jesus as Lord. He just wants a faith that has no hypocrisy. And the thing is, Paul actually agrees. See, I cut out one of the verses from Ephesians chapter 2. This is why you've got to read it in context. At verse 10, he says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We have a purpose that is to work on behalf of Jesus. But the work doesn't put us in Jesus' good graces. It's really important to catch that. I actually want to take a moment here just to point out, in, in full disclosure, no hypocrisy, full integrity of speaking about context, that the majority of James chapter 2 is about loving and serving the poor. That is the bulk of the chapter. It is a challenge to those of us here who are middle class, and like, I don't want to be the spoilers guy, but most of us here are middle class, to challenge us in how we spend our finances, how we serve those who have less. It's a real challenge. But at the heart of it is this theology about faith and deeds. And I just sense God saying it's too important for us to catch this. And I know it's probably a little drier than we are used to, but just hold on because it's so good. It's so good. So if that's what a living faith is, how do we actually do it? Because James is a practical letter. A living faith is a faith in Jesus Christ that saturates every part of us. In the shame, it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is something that we are saturated in, every part of us, obedient to what God is calling us to. And we've got to remember that the end goal of following Jesus is a deeper relationship with God. The end goal is not heaven. Can I tell you that? The end goal is intimacy with God to get closer, to get closer, to get closer. So we have this weird dichotomy where our goal is is Jesus because Jesus is our link to God. That is how we reach God the Father. But we also go, we'll never reach Jesus because Jesus is perfect. So you've got this chicken and the egg thing going. So what do we do with that? What do we do? Well, this is what we do. There is a really, really simple Christian trajectory. Please don't read into this that you understand all of faith from these three simple steps. But if you want to get a sense of what you're doing and where you're going, this will help, okay? So this is where it starts. Step number one, at its simplest form, this is what the Christian trajectory looks like. Number one, intellectual agreement. This is what James is having a go at, intellectual agreement. And in intellectual agreement, we say this, I agree with God as a concept. You may even go as far as to say, I believe that Jesus existed. I believe that he died and rose from the grave. He was a, a true historical figure. He was also the son of God. He is resurrected. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. I believe in all that. I think it is true. What I haven't said yet is for me. See, the difference between intellectual agreement and the next step we'll go to in a second is there's nothing that's alive in you. It's information, not inspiration. It's not transformation. It hasn't done anything to your heart or your spirit yet. There's this passage, famous passage in Ezekiel, where these dry bones are called to life and the bones are lifted up from the ground and flesh clothes them. And you think, wow, that's pretty impressive, but they're still dead. They're waiting for the Spirit of God. And so when we get to this point, and this This is where people might get triggered, so trigger warning. If you are intellectually in agreement with Christianity, you say, yes, God is real. But you say as well, but that doesn't affect me. You probably don't have saving faith. I don't think Paul would say that. I don't think James would say that. I don't think Jesus would say that. 
I'm, I'm the one who has to answer if I'm wrong someday, so don't worry about it. But that's, that's what I believe to be true. Just agreeing in your mind is not enough. On Easter Sunday, I preached about the resurrection and how you can trust in the physical resurrection. And I know, because I spoke to them, that there were plenty of people in that room that were like, do you know what? That's pretty convincing evidence. And then they went home and had dinner. And that was it. And that is absolutely their prerogative. Do you know what? We all start somewhere. And this is really important to agree to, but it's not enough. I just want to encourage you and challenge you with that. I wouldn't be being integrous to what James says if I let that be enough. There is more than this. Now, let me tell you how this looked in my life. I grew up in the church until I was about 13. Never had what I would call a saving moment. Never had what I would call a moment where I even took my faith seriously. I just grew up in church until I was about 13. Then I wandered off, did teenage things as a teenager. But every time I was at high school and people used to rag on Christianity, I would get weirdly defensive. They would say something like, ah, God's fake. And I was like, no, he's not. Like, what do you care? It's like, well, I'm a Christian. Like, are you really? Like, yeah. Like, but you don't go to church. No. Are you in like a youth group? Like, I don't know what that is. What's a youth group? Like, okay. Do you do do anything to do with Christianity at all? Like, no. Like, what do you care then? Like, I don't know. I just believe it to be true. Can, Can you hear what I'm saying? I was living that out. I had an intellectual agreement with the idea of Christianity, but in my heart, nothing. No change. Nothing. So we get to step two. And listen, if you're feeling like under pressure right now, let me encourage you. One leads to two leads to three. God's got you on a journey. Step two is this, personal faith, personal faith. I agree with this for me personally. Now, at this point, friends, the knowledge of the head has become the belief of the heart. Not only do we agree with this, we believe it's true for us personally. And I know a lot of you in this room are in this place. Will you agree with it in your head and something happened and it transformed your heart? Now, this changes things, right? Anytime it's personal and not abstract, that changes things. Young Thomas looked across the room once and said, that, that Pieta is attractive. She's a good-looking woman. There's a, he's in fervent agreement. There she is. And there's a very big difference. You can't see her. She's, she's hidden behind some people. Um, I mean, that's a life, bless her. But that... The, um, we love you, Pete. The, the very big difference from Tom looking across the room and going, I objectively think she's a beautiful woman. And then going, I know her and I'm in love with her. Can, can you see how different that is? It's dramatically different. And, and if the other person doesn't feel that same thing back, what you're feeling is more stalking than love. But that's, <laughs> that's just some life advice for some of my friends out there, all right? You know who you are. This changes things. This changes things. It takes this idea that is abstract and makes it personal. You take information from your mind and it becomes a transformation in your heart and you say, I love God. And for me, I was 19 years old, got dragged to church, my mates, because they promised me cute girls were there and they were, and they dragged me along. And I was just sitting in the back row like a 19-year-old punk that I was, and I was, and something happened. The preacher began to preach and the Holy Spirit hit me and I just started bawling, which was embarrassing, frankly. You know, no cute girls looking at me then. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but something had changed in my heart and I went, wow, this is, this is real. I need to do something about this. And so I just started kind of going and 
I'm going from A to B at this point, step one, step two. And in case you're wondering, this did not look like a confident strut across the catwalk. It was more like a stumbling, tripping over your own heels, looking backwards, turning around, getting confused along the way there. This is the Christian journey, guys. Nobody in this room, if you're new here, if you're new to faith or you're struggling in your faith, nobody in this room went, I'm so confident. I'm my faith. I'm going from here to here. Watch me. Look at me strut. Nobody did that. Everybody's broken. What Christy said is absolutely true. We've been wrestling with stuff all our lives. We've got doubts. We've got wrestles. We've got brokenness, and we're in it together in Jesus' name. Don't believe any lie from the enemy that you are the only one wrestling with stuff. We are all wrestling, but we overcome by the grace of God. Everybody by the grace of God. That is step two. That's how it played out in my life. The Holy Spirit met me powerfully, but there's still one more jump to go. I would encourage you, if, if that's where you are, I think that is saving faith. I think that's what they're talking about. But there is still another step to go. And it's called a loving response, where we say, this is the goal of my whole life. My whole life is about pursuing Jesus. Because here's the thing, in the first step, right, we're just living out our personal faith by, by a belief, going, okay, I believe this to be true. But if you're at a point in life, the thing about being at a point is you can do a 360-degree turn and go wherever you want. That's kind of what just an intellectual understanding does. But then when it becomes personal, we're going in some sort of a straight line. That's what a trajectory is. It's a direction. It's movement. And for many of you, you feel like you're veering all over the place, but you're actually moving in the right direction. I want to encourage you with that. You're moving in the right direction. God is calling you towards Him, and you've reached this personal faith, and you've stumbled all over the place to get there, but you're there, and it's hard won. So hold on to it. But then there's this third step where you go, okay, okay, yeah, I, I believe it in my head. It's changing me in my heart, but my life doesn't look that different, really. I just go to church more, and then I do stuff on Saturdays and Fridays that I try to avoid getting on social media. And then you get to this third stage where you go, actually, I want to give up my life for Jesus. I give up the whole thing, all of it. I want to die to myself and live for Christ. This is what it looked like for me. I was 21. I was on an Easter camp. And uh, the speaker was speaking. And there was this Holy, the Holy Spirit keys were playing in the background. It's good. And I had my hands out. And don't think that was an accident. Because there's something about having your hands out. There's a posture of saying, I surrender. I receive. Right? You know, you know, every time there's, there's a difference. I'm surrendering. So I've got my hands out and I'm praying and God just hits me like a ton of bricks. And I start crying again. Gosh, it's getting embarrassing. And I start crying again and I sense God just say to me, all right, you believe in me, that's fantastic. Now what? The same question that James was challenging his readers with. Now what? What does your life look like? Now for me, what that looked like is I felt convicted. I had to go and really repent. Now, that basically means apologize while you're turning to Jesus. Turn away from all your sin and turn to Jesus. But Jesus was challenging me to do that to other people. That sucks. Can I just tell you? When God's like, hey, can you go apologize to this person of how you've wronged them? You're like, I'd prefer not to. God's like, well, up to you. I thought you said you wanted to live your whole life for me. Okay. Hey, uh, can I get you to quit your job for me? What? This isn't for me personally, but it might be for someone here. I'm like, that's a big deal. Like, oh, you said you wanted to live your whole life for me. Can I get you to go and pray for that person you've never met before? What? Yep. 
what about that person? But that person rips into me behind my back all the time. I know. Go pray for them. This is what God does when you give your whole life to Him. He messes you up big time. And you'd think this is the bit where I'm like, this is, this is the really good bit. And it is. But just know that if you, you're at a place now where you intellectually believe in Christianity and you've got a personal faith, and now you're like, now what? Well, I think I want to live my whole life for Jesus. Just be warned, this is going to mess you up. God is going to take you places you've never been. He's going to ask you to do things you've never done. He's going to challenge you in ways you've never had before because there are two responses that we are called to do. We've already had our minds engaged. We've already had our hearts engaged. And now in this final response, we are asked to do two different things. We're asked to humble our spirits and get our hands dirty. And so the ultimate, uh, tons of good stories have come out of living a life for Jesus. I I would never, ever change a thing. But the, the two things that Jesus really challenged me with constantly in my life since then are these two questions. Number one is this, how am I hearing the voice of God and obeying it? Is my spirit really willing to do whatever God asks me to do? That's the big one, isn't it? Like whatever? Like, oh, we'll start tithing. Is that what you mean? Oh, I guess. But again, a tithe means a tenth, and that's a traditional amount. Actually, in the New Testament, there's a suggestion that's probably more than that, that they're encouraging you to give. Okay, it's a lot. Is that what you're talking about? Like, yeah, but probably more. <laughs> Actually, giving your finance to God means saying all of it belongs to you. I trust you with all of it. Uh, how much am I allowed to keep? <laughs> It's a little bit more like that. It's a little bit more like, like going into a, a group of people and going, I don't know any of these people, um, but this is my church and they're new and I want to welcome them home. And I'm an introvert and I'm dying in every part of me. I'm dying, but I want to welcome them home. It, it is actually about saying, I will lay down my preferences, my life for you. And the reward isn't heaven. The reward is the kingdom of God breaking in right here, right now. The reward is deeper relationship with God the Father. And I know this sounds like I'm not putting enough shine on it, but that's kind of the point. I don't think God wants me to do that tonight. But can I tell you, this journey is unbeatable. There's nothing better than this moment when the goal of your whole life is to follow God. Oh, the second question. So the first is, how am I hearing and obeying the voice of God? The second is this, how am I loving my neighbour, the poor and my community? And I can't shake them. I don't do them flawlessly by any means, but I cannot shake these two questions. Ever since I said, Jesus, my life belongs to you in full, those two questions gnaw at me. I can't get away from them. That's what God will do to you. Because James would want us to know that faith is enough to save you, but faith is completed when your spirit is humbled and your hands are dirty. Dirty hands are pleasing to God. This is Jesus' discipleship tactic too. Come and see, disciples. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see my credibility so you can agree with your head that I'm true. Okay, now follow me. Give me your heart. Let's go. Follow me. All right, now stop. I'm going to go. I'm going to ascend to heaven and I'm going to send you out into the world to get your hands dirty doing ministry for me, led by the Holy Spirit, which is inside you, empowering you on. This is Jesus' discipleship tactic for the world. The question is, are you up for it? Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. 
For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.